the beauty of private ancillary funds is that you can change your mind over time, not putting all your eggs in one basket. If, if there was a cause, another cause that bubbled to the surface, could always redirect funds elsewhere, which is the beauty of PAFs. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 315 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Imagine you had more money than you could ever spend. What would you do with it? You probably use some to go traveling, buy a nicer house and car, and then put a fair chunk aside for your children and future grandchildren. But after that, do you want to make a difference now that you can? Think of the causes that are the closest to your heart, that you feel the most strongly about. And now let's say you have the millions to really make a difference. How would you do it? Yes, you could just wire 10 million across to your charity of choice. Here's the money. Do as you think is best. But what if you want to retain more control, influence how the money is spent and not drown the charity of your choice with one big money dump, but pay as needed? And as important, avoiding losing a fair chunk to tax. How would you structure all this to achieve that? One possible option is a private ancillary fund. And What a private ancillary fund looks like and how it works, that is what Simone Daniels of Andrea Floyers in Sydney will discuss with you in this episode. If someone in that position is faced with a few different options as to how they go about achieving that and distributing a part of their wealth towards a greater cause. So I guess the first option would be that they just make a direct donation to a, an established charity that has its own benefits and drawbacks. I guess on the plus side, it's a relatively simple thing. You basically make your donation to a charity. There's no cost associated with that You, apart from the donation itself. You get your tax deduction if the charity is registered as a DGR, deductible gift recipient. But on the, I guess, the thing that would uh, deter people from that first option would be that there's basically, once you've handed over that donation, you've got no further control over that. You've made your donation and that's it. You're not really leaving behind any form of legacy or structured, uh, structured mode of giving. And, and also, the funds may not necess- that you want to donate may not necessarily be in a liquid form. So, they may not necessarily be readily available to dedicate to that clause uh, to that cause your they may be tied up in sort of more tangible type assets rather than liquid assets so so it's the pros and cons of that first option which is direct donation second option would be to leave a specific gift in your will so very similar to the first option it's simple there's no cost really associated with it apart from the the cost of drafting up a will but i guess the drawbacks are all the same as that first option And in addition, you don't really get to see as the donor the good that your donation has been put towards. You've basically passed away at that stage. So, you don't really get to see the legacy that you're leaving behind, which is a bit of a drawback for some people. Yes. And you also don't get a tax deduction. Correct. Yeah. 
let's say you donated $100,000. If you donated the $100,000 while you are still earning income, you would get a tax deduction, hence con could contribute more. Whereas when you leave a specific gift in the will, you don't get a tax deduction. Correct. Yep. That's another really good point. Yep. Okay. So then the third option uh, that some people may consider is actually setting up their own charity to actually do the good works themselves. So the benefits of that is that, again, all the contributions that you make to that charity are tax deductible. That's big benefit. You've got an ongoing uh, involvement with that charity. So you get to see some of the your legacy being played out that you don't in a situation where you're making direct donations. And there's no sort of middleman involved. So you're not, you're basically in the driver's seat as to what the money you've contributed is being used for. So you have control over that. The drawbacks of that option are that it's a costly exercise. So there's significant setup costs to get a charity up and running that does its own work. A lot of people in this position don't actually want to do the good work themselves. They just want to contribute to it and fund it. They've got their own skills and passions that and business ideas that they're pursuing. They don't necessarily want to actually roll up their sleeves and do the work. They just want to contribute to it. So that would be a drawback of this option as well. And I guess the other potential drawback is once you've put funds into this charity, they're locked up in there. You can't get them back out again for your own personal uses. They're, they're locked up. So then if we then turn to another option, we're finally getting to the crux of what this conversation is all about, and that's private and uh, charitable trust, which is commonly known as a private ancillary fund. A private ancillary fund is a type of charitable trust. So what this sort of structure offers is some more benefits than some of the other options in certain situations. So if you set up a private ancillary fund, what it basically is, is a charitable trust. And look, there's a really convoluted definition of what a private ancillary fund is in the tax legislation, but I've had a crack at sort of distilling the definition down into something a little bit more palatable. Um, it's basically a special type of trust that has the sole purpose of providing money, property or benefits to specific types of charities. So, a lot of your listeners would be very familiar with, say, self-managed super funds, where the sole purpose of a self-managed super fund is to provide retirement benefits to members. A private ancillary fund is basically another type of fund like that. But rather than, than having its sole purpose as providing retirement benefits, its sole purpose is to provide benefits to specific types of charities. And when we talk about specific types of charities, we're talking about charities that are known as item one deductible gift recipients or DGRs. So if we go back to the options that we spoke about before, the item one DGRs are the ones that are actually doing the good works out there in the community. They're, they've rolled up their sleeves and they're providing services or goods or whatever else they're doing in the community. So an easy way to think of what a private ancillary fund is, is that it's basically a conduit for getting funding from individual donors into the hands of established charities. And so when you say specific types of charities, you can leave it very wide or you have to say it, that it is an item one DGR. You don't have to be any more specific than saying item one DGR. 
No. Having said that, you can be more specific if you so if you really, as a family unit or an individual, are particularly passionate about a particular charitable cause, say the environment or homelessness or health or something like that, you can build limitations into the trust deed. But uh, in practice, most people setting up a um, trust, a private ancillary fund, I've found that they've uh, just kept the scope relatively broad because they want to build in a level of flexibility, acknowledging that these trusts are usually in place for a long period of time to come. They want to be sure that it's going to be fit for purpose going forward. And do private ancillary funds, do they have a vesting date like any other fund? And is that usually 80 years? So, yes, the general rule for trusts is that in everywhere except South Australia, there's this thing called the law against perpetuities, which effectively builds in a set time frame for the existence of a trust, which, as you said, is 80 years. There's some exceptions to that, one of them being South Australia, where that law against perpetuities no longer applies. And the second important exception is that it doesn't apply to trusts that have charitable objects. So the law against perpetuities doesn't apply to private ancillary funds if they're properly set up and they only have charitable objects. Good. So that means your private ancillary fund could live forever. Yes. As long as this forever is. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Having said that, you can build a, a an expiry date into it. So, some people that are setting these trusts up, they may actually want the trust to come to an end after a particular trigger event or date. It may They may have in mind that once this particular cause has seen out its lifetime, they don't really want this fund to exist anymore and they'll build in a set date by which it'll be wound up or, or an event after which it'll be wound up. So that, that can certainly be done, but it doesn't have to be done. The capital would then go to nominated beneficiaries? Yes, those, but those nominated beneficiaries, if it's a private ancillary fund, it would be item one DGRs or another private ancillary fund, or sorry, another ancillary fund. So there's, Oh, I see. So it can't yeah. go to your, the descendants of your great-grandchildren or no. similar? It no. would have to go to an item one DGR. Okay. Yeah. So that's a really important thing to know about these private ancillary funds is that once assets and funds go into them, they're basically locked up for that charitable purpose until they're exhausted. And a private ancillary fund is basically just a discretionary trust, correct? Basically, yep. Apart from the fact, of course, that the discretion is very limited in that you can only pay to item one DGRs, but within that condition, you have discretion to distribute as you choose. Correct. Yeah. So it's probably good at this point to sort of, because a lot of your listeners will be familiar with how family trusts operate, it's probably good now to work through how they're different to family trusts. So you're right to a, to the a large extent, they're very much like a discretionary trust, but they've got a bunch of extra regulations and other rules attaching to them that make them uh, operate a little bit differently. So, the underlying structure is the same, but this is how they're different. So, the purpose, of, as we've already touched on, they, their sole purpose is to provide benefits to existing charities. And so, any distributions of the trust property must comply with that sole purpose. They are governed a little bit like how self-managed super funds are governed by the CIS Act. PAFs have 
sorry, do you mind if I use the abbreviation PAFs? Yeah. <laughs> um, they, they carry an additional layer of regulation, which is called the Private Ancillary Fund Guidelines. So that is, those guidelines have been brought into effect by legislation. They were initially brought in through legislation in 2009, and they've just had an uh, update in 2019, which took effect from 16th of September 2019. These guidelines, they sound very harmless. I find guidelines always sound a lot more harmless than acts and laws. How much are they enforced? Well, the main penalty if you don't comply with these guidelines is that your endorsement as a private ancillary fund would be revoked. So what do you get from endorsement as a private ancillary fund? Perhaps what the easiest way to explain it is to walk through how you get endorsement and why you'd get it in the first place. So what happens is you establish the fund by creating and executing a trust deed, much as the same as you would for a family trust. There's certain uh, requirements under the guidelines as to who the trustees must be. So it must be a corporate entity. You can't have individuals as trustees. It has to be a, a corporate entity, a company. At least one of the directors of that company must be what's called a responsible person. So that is someone that has a degree of responsibility to the Australian community as a whole, which is a fairly broad concept. But some ex examples of who would fit that criteria are people like school principals, uh, judges, doctors, local government counsellors, members of professional bodies that have a code of ethics. So, for example, lawyers, accountants, accountants that are members of the Institute of Chartered Accountants, those sort of things. So it's it also individuals that have received recognition like through an order of Australia or something like that. So that's to bring a degree of accountability to the management and governance of the tr trust and that's, that's required under these guidelines. The responsible person, so the person that fills that role, can't be a donor that's contributed or will contribute more than $10,000 to the fund, can't be one of the founders, so One of the founders would be like the, the person that the family member that actually wants to set up the trust itself. And it can't be an associate of one of those people, either a major donor or the, the actual family behind the fund itself. So the trust is set up. It's got a corporate entity. It's got at least one responsible person director together with probably the founders, the people that have set it up as well. You then need to apply to the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, if you want to get endorsed as a private ancillary fund, which would enable the trust to be income tax exempt and also endorsed as a deductible gift recipient, which means that if a donor makes a don donation into the fund, they can claim a tax deduction for it. So the regulator that you apply to for that is the Australian Charities and Not-for-Commission not-for-profits commission, the ACNC, and there's criteria that you have to meet in order to get that endorsement through. So, coming back to your original question as to what happens if you breach the guidelines, basically that endorsement can get revoked so you are no longer tax-exempt and you can no longer be classified as a DGR, meaning that anyone that contributes funds into the trust can't claim a tax deduction. So that's probably the biggest 
consequence that yeah people would have in their minds when they're looking at these guidelines even if they do sound relatively friendly they are definitely enforceable and they are they also provide that there are penalties for the directors of the corporate trustee for particular breaches of those guidelines so the other way that the trusts are different from an ordinary family trust is that again like family trusts you can make a dis- the trustees have the discretion to distribute funds you know to a, a specified class of beneficiaries which are usually individuals associated with the family in private ancillary funds distributions are the same except the class of beneficiaries is different in that the class of beneficiaries is restricted to item 1 DGR charities the other way that they're different is that the guidelines require the trustees to distribute a certain percentage of the market value of the trust's assets each year so that operates a little bit different to family trust i guess in the situation of a family trust and again correct me if i'm not quite articulating this properly but in a family trust each financial year the trustees need to distribute 100% of income or risk getting taxed at the highest marginal rate so with these trusts there is no ta- they're not taxable they don't they're income tax exempt but they're subject to the guidelines which stipulate that they must distribute a certain percentage of their underlying asset base each year which is 5% otherwise they're in breach of the guidelines and i guess the thinking behind that that particular the policy thinking behind that guideline is that this scheme the private ancillary fund scheme is all about trying to encourage australians to engage in structured philanthropy you know i think some of the wording around when they were first introduced is to encourage a culture of giving within australia so if we have a bunch of these trusts sitting around that people are pouring their personal wealth into and claiming a tax deduction for that and none of the money is actually coming out and going into the charities that's a bit of a failure of that scheme <laughs> so there has to be i think it was recognized that there has to be some sort of mandatory rate at which these trusts need to distribute and actually get that money out into the hands of the charities that need that money and then through the trust deed you can probably increase that percentage correct if you wanted to yes uh, and in fact you don't even need to do that through the trust deed if the trustees independently decide to distribute say 80% of the asset base in one year there's nothing to stop them from doing that that's within their discretion to do that yes or you could limit it to distributing the amount of the um income generated in the year yes yes so long as so at the end of each financial year the trustees are obliged to undertake a valuation of the assets held within the trust and then in the subsequent year they then need to um ensure that whatever is 5% of that valuation that they that they obtained the equivalent or more amount of it's distributed out to charities in the next subsequent year i should probably mention at that point that the blanket rule with pafs under the guidelines is that they can't borrow money unless the borrowing meets certain criteria which is set out under the guidelines so so conceivably if there was only real property within the trust they the the trustees may to meet this minimum distribution requirement 
seek to obtain some bank finance or the like to ensure that they meet that 5% distribution rate. So the blanket rule is that they can't do that unless the borrowing is to enable them to meet that minimum distribution rate and the borrowing doesn't exceed a period of 90 days and the borrowing wouldn't result in borrowings exceeding 10% of the market value of the ancillary fund's assets. So if the trustees breach those borrowing restrictions, then there's penalties that can be applied to them personally under the guidelines. So the limit to 90 days basically means you can't, it can't be a long-term solution. You can't no. mortgage the real estate and have the borrowings as a long-term solution. It's basically just to get over a short cash flow shortage. Correct, yeah. Most assets that go into a PEF are cash or shares, but something relatively liquid. That's probably a safe assumption to make. The most recent figures as to what the value of assets are that are held within PAFs in Australia is from the time that private ancillary funds were introduced, I should say they were initially introduced under the Howard government and they were known as prescribed private funds. That terminology changed in around 2009-10 when uh, the Rudd government they changed the scheme to a, to a degree so that the the funds were started being called private ancillary funds and that's when these guidelines were brought in through legislation as mandatory and the whole reason for changing the scheme at that point in time was to as they put it increase the integrity and accountability for these what were previously known as prescribed private funds i think there was a bit of a sense that potentially they were being these prescribed private funds were being used as a bit of a a way to for individuals to claim substantial tax deductions but not necessarily increase the culture of giving within Australia <laughs> which was the ultimate aim I see. Yeah. so the problem was that too much of the funds was just stuck in these prescribed private funds and weren't paid out i think that was part of the concern yeah and that and that the governance of some of these funds was relatively opaque and not being properly regulated. And so money kind of evaporated. A tax deduction was claimed and then the money went somewhere. I think that was part of the concern. Mm. So in the space of 15 years from when they were first introduced in 2000, initially there was about $78 million worth of assets held in private ancillary funds in Australia. So in the space of 15 years, that grew to over $8 billion worth of assets. So that was about a hundredfold increase of Australia's wealth being held in these funds, and it's only grown since then. Prescribed private funds, where they all changed to private ancillary funds, so prescribed private funds no longer exist, or did the old ones just continue the way they are? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think any of the... I think if uh, the prescribed private funds still wanted to be able to claim endorsement for charity tax concessions and be able to offer tax deductions to donors, if their governing documents weren't already compliant with the guidelines that came into place, I think they needed to do something about that. I'm not entirely sure about the transitional pr provisions yeah. for them. So, As far as you think... Prescribed private funds no longer exist. No longer exist. No, it's all private ancillary funds. Yeah. And so the advantage 
of private ancillary funds with respect to tax is that you get a tax deduction when you set it up, correct? If you are the main donor, you can claim all the capital you move into a PEF, correct? Correct. So where, for example, it can prove to be a really good strategy is if you've got a particular year in which you've got a significant capital gain, maybe you've sold a business or a property or something like that, you're going to have to pay tax on that. You may want to consider in that same income year, if, if you're going to be dedicating a portion of your wealth to philanthropy anyway, it might make sense to get that windfall into a private ancillary fund so that the entirety of whatever you put into that fund can be claimed as a tax deduction in that year. So that's the main tax advantage for PATH. Mm -hmm. And then the other advantage is that you can then slowly donate the money to the relevant charities and you don't flood a charity with money. Yeah, that's right. I don't know that you'll find any charity that says that they don't want a large influx of money, but certainly there's certain <laughs> processes and procedures that come in and risks that come into play when you take on a substantial windfall of money. But from the philanthropist's perspective, the donor's perspective, it gives them a vehicle through which they can engage in long-term structured giving. So, you might be able, one donor I can think of supported a, a food bank uh, type vehicle that was distributing food to those that needed it, basically sponsored that vehicle for the next, say, 10 years. So, that was a pet project that he that the donor was able to support in a long-term, you know, through long-term engagement with a charity rather than just throwing money towards a charity and sort of losing sight of what happens to that. It, that the philanthropist became an active participant in sort of what that wealth was being used for, which also gave that person a sense of personal satisfaction and legacy that is really what underpins a lot of the reason why people want to set these things up in the first place, that they there is some value back to the person in, in sort of the sense of feeling like they've contributed to the community, which I don't think we can discount in, in many ways that exceeds the, benef the tax benefits uh, for a lot of the people that I deal with anyway. So, I might just talk a little bit more about how they're different from family trusts. Yes. So, another consideration for someone that's looking to set up a trust like this is the financial reporting and audit requirements of the fund. Some people might get put off by hearing me say that, but I think for the most part, they're not, the reporting requirements aren't too onerous and they're in many ways similar to what you would expect with a self-managed super fund, which um, most people have that are, um, Sorry, a lot of people have got their heads around and are quite comfortable with. So, with a private ancillary fund, as I said, you need the trustees need to estimate the market value of assets annually and they need to report on that market value estimate annually. They need to prepare financial statements for each financial year, which is in accordance with accounting standards. They have to make those financial statements available on request to the ATO or unless they've already provided them to the ACNC, which is, so the ACNC is the main regulatory body that they're reporting to. And to the extent that the ATO needs to get involved at all 
to monitor the compliance with guidelines, for the most part, they will talk with the ACNC as to what's been submitted to the ACNC. So, a lot of these financial reports actually need to go to the ACNC rather than the ATO. And so, the the other thing that they need to do in terms of reporting is that they must um, lodge an annual information statement by the 31st of March each year with the ACNC. And that's a relatively easy statement to lodge. You just go online and there's a series of questions and nothing too complicated. And the other thing that trustees need to be aware of is that if they make any changes to the uh, trustee at all, they need to be notified to the ACNC within set timeframes. So then getting to the audit side of things, the financial accounts of the private ancillary fund need to be audited if the if either the revenue or assets of the PAF are over a million dollars for the financial year. If they're not over that threshold, either revenue or assets, then the the trustees can elect to have the accounts reviewed instead, which is, a, a, I guess, a less rigorous process than a full audit. And, uh, yeah, as I said before, there's, there needs to be a clause in the trust deed which provides that on the winding up of the trust rather than the surplus assets being distributed out to private individuals, they, the surplus assets must be distributed to an item one DGR unless special permission is sought by, uh, from the, the ATO, I believe. So, that's really the main differences between a PAF and a family trust. The main questions that I get asked about before someone decides whether they want to set up a PAF or not is whether they can maintain anonymity or whether the details of this fund will become public. Some people don't necessarily want others to see the extent of wealth that's been allocated to charitable causes or they don't necessarily want to be solicited for donations. So, in answer to that, there is special provision when you are registering with the ACNC. Most other charities, all of their details go on to the charity register, which is publicly available and searchable online. When you apply to the ACNC to register as a private ancillary fund, you can actually apply to have a substantial number of details withheld from the public record. So, that can include the name and the ABN of the fund. It can include certain contact details of the fund. It can include some portions of the governing rules. So, that's like the trustee. Importantly, you can withhold the name of uh, particular directors of the corporate trustee. And in order to do that, you need to be able to show the ACNC that if those details were revealed to the public, it would likely identify the identities of people that are making donations to the fund. And in those situations, the ACNC will withhold that information from the public record. So, the answer to whether someone can maintain an anonymity is uh, yes, to a certain extent, you can. The other question that I get asked a lot is, what's the cost of maintaining a private ancillary fund? I guess people don't, although they want to do good in the community, they don't necessarily want to complicate their lives with a whole other structure that's going to need a lot of maintenance and cost thrown at it. Often, I guess the the cost associated with maintaining a PAF 
really will depend on the type and value of assets of the that the PAF holds. The types of ongoing costs to maintain it would be any costs associated with making distributions. So, in a situation where you've got a, say, you've agreed to make a certain grant to a charity, you might need to do some due diligence on that charity or assess grant applications that are made to the foundation seeking seeking that grant. So, there might be costs associated with basically doing due diligence on the people that you're going to be distributing, sorry, the charities that you're going to be distributing money to. There's, there could be fees associated with maintaining financial records and accounting. So, that would be where you get your accountant to do the financial statements or auditing and review. There may be financial services fees for things like a financial advisor managing your investments, the investments on behalf of the fund. If you appoint a professional trustee as the responsible person on your board or to, to fill any other role on your board, there may be fees that you may need to pay associated with that. And the this is probably not necessarily going to be a cost, but it's just another responsibility to be aware of if you're setting one up is that uh, you need to appoint someone to be reporting to the ACNC within certain timeframes if there's changes within your fund, lodging that annual information statement and also maintaining your public records so to the extent that they are public. So, they're the main costs and responsibilities associated with maintaining a PAF. Another question I sometimes get asked is whether a private ancillary fund can run or carry on any form of business activities. The answer to that is uh, generally no. So then the question becomes, what does it mean to carry on a business? So the, the guidelines drill into that a little bit. So, and verbatim from the guidelines, the mere holding of or dealing in investments such as shares or rental properties does not classify as carrying on a business. So I guess if, you're, um, if you've got a commercial property, say, that, it, that the PATH owns and you lease that out to a commercial tenant that... The, the rent associated with that would not be classified as carrying on a business, so so that should be fine. But if there's any question as to whether what the PAF is proposing to do might cross the line of it undertaking uh, sort of business activities and breaching that prohibition on carrying on a business, it's probably best to get specific advice on that and just make sure that it's not going to breach the guidelines. Yes, and if you want to undertake a business, it's probably best to do it within a charity. Not within a PEF, but within a charity. Yes. Well, uh, if you're going to carry on a business, I guess the question becomes, where do you want the income of that business to end up? If it's in your personal hands, then it's then it needs to be a for-profit structure. Yes, there are quite a lot of charities that do run some form of business. So, for example, when the Cancer Institute sells bathing suit falls under business, but it's still, of course, within the charitable purpose. There's a difference between what is a private ancillary fund and what is an institution. So, and the Cancer Council would be, it would be probably more, it's an, in the nature of an organisation. So, it's most likely an item one DGR and um, there's no issues there in terms of it having any restrictions on it, conducting business activities. The other question that I get asked is whether uh, a don donor can claim a tax deduction for the value of 
property that they donate into the private ancillary fund? And the answer to that is yes. So that is if that's only if it, the property was purchased within 12 months of the donation being made or the property is valued at over $5,000. If the property is valued at, if it falls into either of those categories, you need to get the ATO to actually conduct, it needs to be valued by the ATO. And there's a mechanism through which you can apply to the ATO to get that asset valued, which then enables you to claim the deduction in your tax return. So, in that situation, I would recommend that those proposing to donate real property into a PAF get specific advice on on how they go about doing that and document that so that the deduction can be appropriately claimed. So, that would be through a tax agent would be able to help with that. I have one final question for you. Yes. If you suddenly inherited a lot of money, which charity would you support or which cause would you support through a private auxiliary fund? Me personally? Yes. Oh, gee, that's you should have given me some notice for that. Oh, I see. Sorry <laughs> about that. Well, look, I'm fairly passionate about our natural environment. I am supporting some revegetation projects. So that would probably be my chosen cause at the moment. But the beauty of private ancillary funds is that you can change your mind over time. You know, you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. If, if there was a cause, another cause that bubbled to the surface, I could always redirect funds elsewhere, which is the beauty of PAFs. Welcome back. So when you put money into a private ancillary fund, you get a tax deduction straight away. But it also means that the money is gone. Upon vesting, the fund assets have to go to a term one DGR and they can't go back to your family. In the next episode, episode 316, Clint Harding of Arnold Block Liebler in Sydney will discuss four important concepts of international tax with you. Foreign hybrid rules versus hybrid mismatch rules. TOFA, so the Taxation of Financial Arrangements, Thin Capitalization and CFC, so Controlled Foreign Companies. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <music>